0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net Well, um, we're going to spend our time, most of our time, in Genesis chapter 2 there. Uh, As we think about Genesis rooted in God's reality which is our current series. So please turn back to that uh, section there in chapter two, which is on page four, and we'll be uh, hearing what God's word has to say. As far as the bride was concerned, the wedding was perfect. Her dress was beautiful. The vows were traditional, and she changed her name after the ceremony. The clifftop scenery was breathtaking. Sounds like we've actually got a seagull in the building. What's going on here? Is that a ringtone? There's a bird up there that's trying to ignore it. The clifftop scenery was breathtaking. The seven bridesmaids were encouraging and supportive. There was only one thing missing. The groom. Like a growing number of single women, Sarah Starkstrom had decided to marry herself. Can we have the slide up? Though it wasn't a legally binding ceremony, the 36-year-old takes her married status seriously and still celebrates her anniversary. Every year on the 9th of September, I have to honor my vows and really try to live up to the promises I made. Now, while this may sound a bit mad or narcissistic or completely pointless, self-marriage or sologamy is actually a way in which increasing numbers of people mostly women, find themselves wanting to settle down, have children, and make a lifelong commitment, but being short of someone to do it with. Today, there are more single people than at any previous time in history, especially in large cities like ours. In America, where Beyoncé sang, all the single ladies, unmarried women now outnumber married women. In the UK, this happened 10 years ago. Fewer women than ever want to become wives. Those aged between 25 and 44 are not even cohabiting. They're five times more likely to live by themselves today than they did in 1973. And almost half of children are born out of wedlock. That figure, commentators think, is going to expand massively in the next generation. The Marriage Foundation predicts that people in their 20s right now, only one in two, will marry at all. Now everything I've just read to you is from an article in The Spectator that was published this summer by Ariane Shireen. She links this trend of sologamy, self-marriage to wider trends in our culture. What does this tell us? Many people feel that the traditional institution of marriage has had its day. It's failed and we've got to move on. Some people have expected too much from marriage and found that it did not deliver. So they're very disappointed. And there's an increasing tendency to self-absorption, to define myself on my own terms, whether that's through how I project myself through social media and pouting into a selfie stick or even through redefining yourself through plastic surgery and becoming a different person face a different person, or recoiling from any kind of dependence on others. Now, the effects of these big cultural trends, according to this commentator, are fewer people getting married and more children born out of wedlock. Now, one of the questions that's underneath all of that is what's best for human flourishing? What is best for human flourishing? How can we achieve the good life that we all yearn for? How can we build strong societies? In the traditional view... Marriage is a a, a social necessity. You all know those famous words from Jane Austen. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. You've got to do it. Whether through the iron will of social convention or the romantic swoon of Hollywood marriages and romances, marriage, in the traditional view, is held out as a kind of ultimate thing that you've got to do. But people react against that and in the modern view, marriage is seen as often a stifling restriction. Why would you want to do that? Joni Mitchell sang a great folk classic in 1971, we don't need no piece of paper from the city hall, keeping us tied and true. Why do you need some sort of formal, official, recognized promise, some kind of covenant to keep you tied and true? You know your own heart. But then people start to say, well, why commit to one person for life? Keep your options open, because now, in our late modern time, there's something that's seen as more important than making and keeping your promises, and that is self-fulfillment. You must be happy at all costs, even if it means breaking your vows. Now, the Bible affirms some aspects of every culture, and it also challenges some aspects of every culture. And right back here in the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis, where the world is still pristine and we see human life as it was meant to be, we find the world's first marriage. We find the creation of marriage. And in this biblical vision of marriage, we find a a challenge. It's a challenge to the modern view and to the traditional view. It's more self-giving. It's more personally committed than the modern idea of a relationship that just fulfills you. But it's also more dynamic and more passionate and more robust than a traditional idea of just keeping your promises. When we can truly grasp and live out biblical marriage, we actually see a picture of the life of God himself. It's given for the good of society and it's given for something more personal. Marriage, according to the Bible, Christian marriage is a contract to help you become more like Jesus. It's a contract to help you become more like Jesus. There's an old uh, tape that I've got of a sermon by Tim Keller, uh, who is often quoted here. He talks about a wedding day, just imagine it. And you see the bride and the groom, and they come in. They look wonderful, don't they? They don't normally look like that. They get dressed up in all their finery. The bride looks amazing. The groom is scrubbed up well. They look like the most beautiful version of themselves. And Keller says, what you're doing on your wedding day is dressing up. You know like children go and get into the wardrobe and get their parents' clothes out, and they dress up to be like adults? On your wedding day, you're not really that beautiful. You're pretending. You're dressing up. But you're also making a promise. A Christian wedding is a promise to help each other become that beautiful in the years to come. I don't mean physical beauty, I mean character, the thing that really counts. Because when it is lived as it should be, marriage will purify you and refine you over years and years until you're sweet and gracious and godly and selfless. Then, and only then, will you be as beautiful as you were on that dressing up day which is a promise. So there's the goal of marriage, to glorify us, make us into who we were meant to be. So, that's all introduction. Marriage is very important for many, many people. It's right there in Genesis chapter 2. It's there before the fall. When human life is as it is meant to be, there is marriage. It's a cornerstone for society. It's a cornerstone for family. So we're going to think about marriage today, the meaning of marriage. But before we do that, I just want to make four brief caveats. Right? One, we've not all had good experiences of marriage. We've not all had good experiences. Whether it's your parents or your friends or your own hurt, heartbreak and disappointment, some of us have a lot of scar tissue when we start thinking about marriage and I want to acknowledge that and try and speak sensitively today and to say really clearly up front, marriage is important but it's not ultimate. Secondly, some of us would like to get married, but the opportunity hasn't presented itself. Uh, When I was 27, I I honestly felt, after a number of failed relationships, that was it. I was going to be on the shelf for the rest of my life. Part of me was quite glad about that. You may be painfully aware of this. It may be kind of a deep ache inside you. And I want to say, before we even talk about the rest of it, God knows you. And he loves you. And if you trust him, he will work in all things for your best and for your good. And I want to ask you to listen to this teaching today, both for your own sake, in case one day you do get married, and for your understanding of the lives of other people, friends and members of our church family, who are married and who need to be encouraged how to live rightly. Thirdly, I'm going to go out on a limb for a moment. It may be, it just may be, that there are some people here who could have been married by now and they'd quite like to be, but they're still single because they are commitment-phobic or they're looking for perfection. Maybe. Some people go through life entering into relationships, getting really, really close, and then finding fault with that other person because they're not quite good enough. Or... They get into a relationship, they get very, very close, and then they get cold feet when it comes time to commit. They're like an airplane that never quite lands on the runway. It comes in and then swoops off again. Perhaps some of us, then, need our vision of marriage to be realigned because the Bible's vision might be different from yours. So please listen to the teaching today. Fourth, Fourth caveat, according to the Bible, marriage is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Not an ultimate thing. What are ultimate things? Your relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That you are leaning your weight of your life, your trust, your heart, and finding your identity in Him, finding your security in Him. That's ultimate. Seeing the idolatry and the sin and the perversion of your own heart, bringing it to the cross of Jesus, repenting, turning away, and walking in newness of life. That's ultimate. Being a Christian is an identity. Being married isn't. Being single isn't. It doesn't define you. That's not identity. But being a Christian is a follower of Jesus. And you know, don't you, that being married or single is not a guarantee of fulfillment or security or anything else. But knowing Jesus Christ and experiencing the new birth, those things are. So let's keep perspective. All that said... What do we learn about marriage from Genesis 2 and its development then later in Ephesians chapter 5? If we want to be rooted in God's reality on this important subject, what do we learn here? What's the meaning of marriage? Now, Lakey, you've already revealed the second point. We may as well show everybody the four. four. So there's four things. Marriage is about four things. Dependence, devotion, delight, and dance. Dependence, devotion, delight, and dance. Firstly, dependence. Have a look with me again at chapter 2, verse 15, there on page 4. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now this is amazing. The first thing in all creation that is not good. Remember chapter 1? God says let there be light and there's light and there's day and night. And he sees it, he says it's good. And there's this refrain, it keeps going up. God did this, said this, and this happened, and he saw that it was good. All been good. And then right at the end of it, he says it's very good. Behold, it's very good. Now here we have the first thing. In all creation, it is not good. That should make us pause. Something's not good. In, in the perfect world, something's not good. doesn't mean it's morally wrong. It's just not, it's not good. What is it? Is it singleness? No. It's to be alone. Have a look with me again. Verse 18, God said it is not good for the man to be alone. What this tells us is that we were built for community. We were made for it. As a fish is made to swim in the sea. We were built for community. And so marriage, first and foremost, is a community. Fundamentally, it is about companionship companionship, not about being swept off your feet and being in love and romancing all the time, but about companionship. But is this companionship just about hanging out with each other, like roommates? No. In Genesis chapter 2, it is a community with a purpose. There are some tasks given. They've got to fill the earth. You can't do that on your own, can you? Even if you're very large. You've got to fill the earth. They've got to work and take care of the garden. They've got to develop the world. You can't do that on your own. it take a very long time. And they've also got to keep a commandment. This is interesting. Here in the perfect world, God gives an amazing range of choice and permission. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There's a lot of trees in this garden, except one. There is a commandment, and it carries a warning. The word of God here, God's word says, you must not eat from this tree the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from that, you will certainly die. Now that's really interesting. Where life is as it's meant to be, there's still something, a command to keep. There's a choice to be made. Humanity have free will at this point, And that means they can choose. But it also means they can choose to stray. They can choose to trust the loving creator, keep his commandment and believe that he loves them And he's got the best in mind for them. And that even though they might want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and know all about that stuff, which they don't really know, they can trust his word that he's got their best interests at heart. Or they can choose to doubt the creator. They can choose to break his commandment. They can go their own way. They can enthrone themselves as the lords. They can situate themselves at the center of the universe the sun around which everything else has to spin. What will they do? Which way will they choose? Saint Augustine, one of the great theologians of the Christian church, talked about this, what human beings were like, using a Latin phrase, posse non picare. Posse non picare, It means possible not to sin. So the first humans were able not to sin. Posse non pecari. They had a command. They were provided with a choice, but they they could keep it. Now, notice here danger is looming. There's a dark shadow coming just in chapter 3. A great enemy will slide into the garden. So, Adam needs a helper. He needs an ally in the tasks filling the earth, working and taking care of the garden, keeping the command. He needs a helper. And God's, maybe we could say the crown of all creation is not the creation of man, but the creation of woman. The creation of woman, Eve. Okay, what does all this add up to? Uh, Can we go back so that there's only one on the screen? It adds up to this. We were made for dependence. We were made for dependence. We were not created for splendid isolation. We are not meant to be solitary beings. God isn't. He's a divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're made like him. We need community. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody should get married. Some of the greatest Christians in church history have been single. Our own Lord Jesus never married on this earth. The Apostle Paul appears to have been single. Many, many great uh, followers of God have been single people. It doesn't mean you have to get married, but it does mean that everyone should be in community. We should be dependent on each other. Being in community means that there are some people who you are in committed relationship with, where there is trust and there's dependence, where they know you, they know everything about you, and they can challenge you, where there is absolute honesty and where you are able to be vulnerable. That is what it means to really be in community. And without that, according to Genesis 2, things are not good. It's not good to be alone. So friends, are you in such a community? You should be. You need it. But some may have hurts and scars from the past and you feel like it's better to be alone, better to be an island. But according to this text, it's not for your good. It's not good to be alone. And married people here, Does your marriage reflect the priorities of this world's first marriage? Is your marriage a true companionship in the three tasks that God gives you? Multiplication, gardening, and keeping the word. Multiplication. Now, we think in this context is about having children, but in the New Testament, it takes on a bigger horizon. In the New Testament... Followers of Jesus fill the earth with image-bearers of God by having and raising spiritual children, making disciples of all nations. So is your marriage a place of devotion to that, to raising children, spiritual children? Is your marriage a place of devotion to see our city filled with communities of light, to see the world filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, to see Jesus made much of in your street, in your family, your home, your workplace, to help each other to multiply, to see more people come into faith in Jesus. Now that is a more glorious vision for your marriage, isn't it? Than building an extension or having the kitchen done or going on a holiday in Spain. Perhaps the greatest example of this I've ever seen was a couple, American couple who were in our church, members here for about two years, only two years, and they had no biological children. But through their life, And through their example and their work and through their marriage, dozens of East Asian people were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. They had a lot of children. You can too. Multiplying, but also keeping the word. Notice that Adam's task involves keeping God's word. Is your marriage, those of you who are married, a place of accountability? Do you help each other to grow? You are the best place people to do that. Sometimes marriages reach a kind of quiet agreement. It goes a bit like this You don't challenge this area of sin in my life, and I won't challenge that area of sin in your life. Maybe you just don't want the hassle too much trouble to bring things up maybe you fear confrontation you know you came from a home where nobody ever said boo to a goose you know, you just can't do confrontation but you must you must and you can help your spouse to keep the word of God you can so are you challenging one another to grow to be more like Jesus a spouse who does this will make you twice the person you were when you got married. Three times, four times, five times, ten times the person you were when you got married. Make you more and more beautiful. Because they are best placed to address your attitudes, aren't they? They see what you're really like when the doors are closed and the life group have gone home. <laughs> best place to address our attitudes. Best place to challenge how generous we are. Best place to address that critical spirit. Those indulgent habits, that self-absorption. Are you encouraging each other, married people, to grow more like Jesus? Couples can go sour together, or they can shine like stars. What's it going to be? You're in a dependent relationship. What kind of dependence is it? Now, the second area of biblical teaching about marriage is that it is a place of devotion. Devotion. My colleague, Rich, uh, often describes the difference between commitment and involvement with the story of a pig and a chicken. One day, the chicken comes to the pig and he says, you know what, I've had a great idea. Let's make breakfast for the farmer to thank him for all he does for us. And the pig says, good idea, what should we make him? And the chicken says, bacon and eggs. And the pig sort of pauses for a moment and he says, well, you're involved, but I'm committed. (laughs) Now, in our Bible passage today, I think you'd have to say that Adam is committed. In order to get Eve, he loses his side. It's like bacon. Where is it? Look at verse 21. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping... There's a movie called that, one. while he was sleeping? While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or, or sides and he closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib or side he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now, what is going on here? Adam is committed. Now, this word rib or side, we're not quite sure what's going on here. This seems to be some kind of surgery. He's deeply anesthetized. What's going on? Now, whether you take this very literally and you think that literally God made the first human fall into a deep sleep and took something out of his body and made him and Eve into different things, you can believe that. Or you can believe that there's something symbolic and deeply profound about this, but it's not describing a literal picture. Actually, it doesn't matter which one of those you would say. The main thing is that there's a fundamental distinction being made between male and female. A fundamental distinction. Now we know from chapter 1 that male and female are made in the image of God. They share their absolute equality of dignity and worth and jointly image bearers. But they are very distinct. A world with only blokes in it would be an imbalanced world, wouldn't it? Imagine what that world would smell like. (laughs) A world with only women in it might be slightly imbalanced as well. We need each other. Now again, this is not saying that you're only half a person until you get married. But it is saying that we need the voice of the opposite sex to speak into our lives. We need the voice of the opposite sex to speak into our lives. Perhaps the finest leader of global Christianity in the 20th century was a man called John Stott. Uncle John, as he was known. He never married but his biographers revealed that he had deep and enduring friendships with women who spoke into his life. And what is this image of the rib and the side being take away? And then to meet Eve, look what he says. This is now bone of my bones, verse 23. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's a wordplay in the Hebrew language there that shows the closeness but also the distinction between those two, woman, man. And then it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, there's the meaning of marriage. It's a union. It is a coming back together. It's a one flesh relationship. Two become one. It's very profound. Now, verse 24 unpacks it traditionally they used to say leave cleave and become one flesh leave means you leave your old family you actually there's some kind of severing goes on you, you're no longer primarily relating to your parents maybe some cultures this is more of an issue than others primary relationship is no longer to your parents and your birth family your primary relationship now is to your spouse you become a new family A new family unit. That's leaving. Cleaving means joining together, joining everything together, becoming absolutely united. And one flesh probably is a reference to sex, becoming one flesh, become physically joined. Two distinct persons become one unit, one flesh. Now, this is why sex is sacred. It is sacred. In the Bible, sex is not a hobby. It's not something you do for leisure. It's not a means of self-fulfillment. It is a complete giving of oneself to another person in deep union. Sex is sacred. And that's why it should only be shared with another person in a committed, lifelong, monogamous partnership with someone of the opposite sex. That's how we've been made. That's how the loving creator wired us up. That's the way for human beings to flourish, according to the Bible. And if you break God's law, you always break yourself. Marriage is a union. It's supposed to be a financial union. So if you're married and you have separate bank accounts and you think about it as his money and her money, I think you've got problems. It's supposed to be a union. Two become one. It's, it's our money. It's never my money. Financial union. Legal union emotional union, union of time not leading separate lives and therefore sexual union the union of the body is just reflecting the union that's happening on every single other area of life so such a big commitment ought not to be entered into lightly but after due consideration and care Jesus Christ himself quoted this text and said that marriage should be for life What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, because we live in a broken world, the Bible does make allowances for divorce and remarriage in certain cases. Sexual infidelity, serious abuse, desertion. But the vision of marriage that the Bible holds up is a union that lasts until death do us part. So, friends... Single friends, if you're contemplating marriage, if you're thinking about it sometime in the future, enter into it with great care and with reverence, prayer, seeking advice. And if you are a Christian, you should not enter into sexual union outside of marriage. You should not enter into that kind of sexual union outside of marriage because to do so is to unite with someone who you have not committed to. Now, all this talk about devotion can start to feel a bit heavy and there's an appropriate seriousness about it, isn't there? But devotion is kind of the backdrop and the foreground is delight. Third point, delight. Look at Adam's reaction when he sees Eve. Verse 23 of chapter 2. The man said, Whoa! (laughs) No, he didn't say that. He says, (laughs) he says, whoa, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, which means woman, for she was taken out of Ish, which means man. The creation of Eve, in other words, leads to the first poem in human history. The first rock song, the first ballad. Adam's just got his lighter out and he's waving it around. Whoa! There's a wonderful tenderness to this scene, isn't it? Just think about it. Here's the, the, the great Creator God, and he speaks the cosmos into being, and all the stars and the sun and the moon, and he speaks. He separates water and all the. You know, he he works on a pretty big canvas. You know, God is kind of a macro-level engineer, and he makes this five foot nine. Man, five foot nine is the perfect height for a man, by the way. <laughs> Dark haired, blue eyes, you know, slightly overweight. He makes this, this, probably the age of 45, the perfect age. He makes this, um, this man and he puts him there in his gun. He gives him jobs to do, and there he is. He's naming the creatures, he's classifying them. And then God cares for his needs. He looks at him and he says, You know what? It's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to meet his need. Wonderful. Uh, insight into the character of God and his love and he makes indeed a suitable helper a suitable helper now helper might sound like somebody who wears a penny and does a lot of baking you know barefoot and chained to the sink pregnant most of the time but actually in the bible the word helper is elsewhere used about God himself helping Israel when they were fighting battles So this is a strong word. It's 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 like a military word. It's an ally. I will make him a suitable helper. Someone to come alongside and help in the the tasks God has given in the world. And it's such a delight for Adam to realize he's no longer alone. There's delight in that. There's also delight in sexual union. They, they, They were joined together and became one flesh. The joy and the tenderness provided by God's wisdom. And verse 25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That doesn't mean they were completely buff, (laughs) but that they were completely vulnerable with each other. They had no reason to fear. They had no reason to suspect or to doubt each other. They had nothing to hide. And that is delightful. So marriage is given for delight. So it's like a, a, a beautiful walled garden. Within it, things of beauty can be cultivated and enjoyed, but it does take work because weeds can spring up or things can be neglected. For marriage to be delightful, you have to delight in it. Intentionally invest in it, care for it, love each other, look after each other. Married friends, do you invest in your marriage? Do you nurture it and cultivate it, care for it? Or do you just tolerate it? You can change. Fourthly and finally, marriage is a dance to dance when we come to the question about how we're going to relate in marriage what sorts of roles we have we don't get a lot of information in genesis chapter 2 this is a very uh, tight compressed text and it just gives us in brief picture what marriage is about but in the new testament the writers take this language and they unpack it, and we thought we read earlier on from Ephesians chapter five, and I'm gonna land the plane there and just think a bit about marriage relationships, which I'm gonna describe as a dance. Ephesians chapter five, I'm on page 1176, page 1176, uh, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, that's from Genesis. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife. Sorry, let me say that again. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. We find that there's a pattern for marriage. Uh, it's not to people who have exactly the same role. There's some kind of complementary roles described in the scriptures. God gives us different roles to play. The language for women is submit and respect, to assume a position of supporting and respecting the husband. And the language for the man is that he is to love and to serve her. As Jesus Christ loved the church, in other words, to lay down his own needs, interests, and desires and to build her up. A servant leader and a loving helper. Servant leaders, husbands, you are to serve your wife in all things. Sacrifice yourself for her. Love her with all you've got. That's the place from which you lead. Does Jesus Christ ever say, do anything to his church or say anything to his church that upsets her and undermines her or that wounds her. You know he doesn't. That's how you are to love your wife. And wives, you are to be loving helpers, that kind of strong helper like Eve, coming alongside in the task, using your distinctive strengths to help your husband be a servant leader, not always putting roadblocks in his way, criticizing him or undermining him. The best analogy I can think of this is dancing. And I say this as a really bad dancer. I think I'm probably the worst dancer in the room. (laughs) <laughs> that's my wife agreeing with me you know that middle-aged man dancing double chin now what I've noticed about dancing because our family had a brief flirtation with a program called strictly thankfully they're not watching it anymore both partners are equally important in the dance but they have a different role if they both do their part well one leading the other supporting, but the one who's being supported often is the star. Then the the dance is a thing of beauty. But if they're both trying to do the same moves, it goes all over the place. Now this operates within marriage, not all male-female relationships. The man is to lead. The Bible talks the language of headship, which is a voluntary, respectful submission between equals. Okay, why have we spent all this time on marriage today? Because it's so important. Because, especially in our generation, marriage is a battlefield. And some may be in danger of choking the life out of marriage or even of sailing it into shipwreck. Is it time to have a bit of a review of where your marriage is? Some couples end up as roommates. They're friendly enough, but there's no passion. They're not lovers. Some couples end up frozen. Some end up in boring mediocrity. If we want marriages that sparkle, that flourish, that soar and develop over the years, we need them to be rooted in God's reality, to appreciate that they are relationships of dependence, of absolute devotion, of delight, and that they are a dance. And that means that wives will respect their husbands, let him lead. Build him up, don't tear him down. Stop nagging the poor soul. Take him seriously. Speak of him with honor, don't dismiss him as the idiot he really is at times. In biblical marriage, every husband is a king. He may not rise very high up the food chain at work. He may never drive a Ferrari. He may not look like George Clooney. But when he walks into your life, make him feel like a million dollars. You'll be surprised at what it does. You'd be surprised. Husbands, love your wife. Really love her. Build her up. Don't ignore her. Stop interrupting her all the time. Don't bully her. Never bully her. Or ridicule her. Making jokes out of her. Stop nitpicking and quarreling with her. Treat her opinions and her ideas as of the utmost importance and interest. Speak of her with honor in front of other people. Speak to her with gentleness. Especially at those times when you don't understand her. In biblical marriage, every wife is a princess. Stop looking at other women's beauty and have your eyes trained on her. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a maid. Have eyes only for her and for the Lord Jesus. When she walks into the room, make her feel like a million dollars. You'll be astonished at what it does to your marriage and your love life. Now I've got your attention. Now, these things are not rocket science. Anyone can do them, but it takes a lifetime of practice. These things emerge from the heart of being a follower of Jesus, where our old nature, which is all curved in on itself and self-absorbed, gets replaced by the new birth, and we get progressively turned outwards to serve others in the world. This teaching here in Ephesians 5 would produce such a beautiful marriage, wouldn't it? Everyone knows that the opposite of this is ugly, the bullying husband, the contemptuous wife. We want our marriages to be places of beauty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and a scholar and a pastor. He he never married. He died young. He was imprisoned by the Nazis. But while he was in prison, he thought very deeply about the meaning of marriage. And he wrote a sermon about it for his niece, Renate Schleicher, and his friend Eberhard Bethke. And his words are very powerful. I'll close with these. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage you are a link in the chain of the generations which God causes to come and pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so marriage. Not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God. So, those who are married, let's work on our marriages to be places of dependence, devotion, delight, and dancing. The Bible begins with a wedding. And you know what? It ends with one, two. At the end of time, at the end of the world as we know it, there's a glorious picture given of a new world being created, a new creation, and a city of God descending uh, from heaven to earth, and heaven and earth being united and God's will being done in all of the world. And here at Revelation 21, the end of the Bible, we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is where Jesus Christ, who's single, gets married. He marries his people. There's complete union between him and the church. So we're In this important but temporary, momentary marriage, those of you who are married, waiting for a future fulfillment when the ultimate bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back. Just think of what he did for his bride. He laid down his life for her. Think of what it means to belong to him. Be one of his people, finding your identity in that. And let's live lives that are worthy of his love, worthy of the high calling we've been given. And let's look forward to the day we see him face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, its depth, its profundity, the way it challenges us, the way it teaches us, the way it corrects us, the way it, it comforts. We're so aware of The fallenness of this world, we're so aware of the crookedness of our own nature, the sinfulness of our own hearts, deceitful and wicked above all things. And yet we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit into the lives of your people to change them, to make them more like you. Thank you that you've made us as you have. You are a wise creator. Thank you that you've loved us so much and help us to walk with you, to walk with each other in community and for those who are married now or in the future to glorify you by the way we live amen thank you for downloading this podcast from grace church manchester to listen to more or to get involved with church life visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net